Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Levin. Thank you. Welcome to 2015. Welcome to 2015 Pediatric Grand Rounds. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming. I have to share um, some sad news this morning. Uh, our friend and colleague, Mark Harris, member of our faculty and teacher for a long time, lost his wife over the uh, holiday break uh, after a four-month struggle with cancer. It sounds like there is a mass, I believe, this weekend uh, celebrating and a celebration of her life in June heading, heading up. So we will get some information about any suitable Thanks. So we'll get information, detailed information about the mass and any appropriate charities. If we're going to make a um, a, a lump uh, contribution from the from, from folks, so if people want to either send directly to charities or if they want to send a check to the Department of Pediatrics, we'll we'll co uh, collate all of the donations and make a donation uh, in in her honor. So. So, and that was the second loss, actually, in 2014. I think Chuck Capetta would be comfortable with us sharing that he lost his wife also earlier in the year 2014. So hopefully better news in 2015. It's also flu season, officially. There's high rates in the community. So if you have a fever above 38 degrees Celsius, as I did Monday night, stay home from work and call your supervisor, as I did yesterday. And do as Dr. Colligan is doing, and not as I did on Monday night, if you have a cough, don a mask. <clears throat> so with that said, as I say, not as I did, um, we are welcoming the new year with Dr. Omar Buddha from our section of pediatric critical care with a very um, um, enticing uh, title of talk, so I'll leave that as it is. Dr. Buddha is a native of Pittsburgh who attended the, the Pennsylvania State University, where he was awarded the Ernest McCoy Award for Excellence in Athletics and Academics, as well as the Big Ten Conference Medal of Honor for Excellence in Athletics and Academics as a um, bioengineering and engineering science major and a member of the National Tampion Fencing Team. He um, completed his medical degree of university, at University of Pittsburgh and joined us after his Pediatric Critical Care Medicine Fellowship and Chief Residency at the University of Washington and Seattle Children's Hospital, where he continued to earn honors. Well, the gold, human, gold Humanism honor was probably at Pittsburgh at medical school, which I think is an enormously um, impressive achievement. So without further ado, Omar, teach away. <coughs> Well, good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Great. Um, well, Happy New Year. Um, I, one of the things I like about the New Year is that uh, uh, it's a time where we can both make plans, resolutions, uh, and reflect a little bit on the prior year as well and where we've come. And in critical care, one of the things that we do all the time is resuscitation uh, and uh, I, I thought it would be nice, especially in light of a lot of new data and studies that have come out, even just in the past few months, which I'm, I'm going to share with you um, to kind of let you know the current state of resuscitation in pediatric medicine, but to, to reflect a little bit on, on where we've come 
uh, from and where we're going as a field. Um, uh, right, this for those, right, probably recognize this, this is the phoenix, which in uh, ancient mythology was a bird that would revive itself every year um, by bursting into flames and rising from the ashes of itself. Uh, and, and I guess as we go through and we talk about some of the history of resuscitation, I think about this and how so many of these themes that have played out time and time again keep coming back. But the other thing I'd challenge you as, as you're listening to, to some of the history of CPR is also think about, sure, 300 years ago, people thought that they were doing the absolute best right thing. And now today, think forward 300 years about what we're doing now and see if you can think of things maybe that are going to change between now and then. Um, I have no disclosures. Um, uh, so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the history of CPR and then uh, moving on, focusing on what is going on today, uh, particularly uh, some of the recent data that's come out over the past decade. We'll then talk about some of the applications of that to the simulation lab, which is where a, a vast majority of healthcare professionals are now getting their real hands-on experience in simulation, since at a particularly smaller institutions, uh, we don't see many cardiopulmonary arrests in children on a daily basis. And then we'll spend some time looking at new advances in the field that are coming down the pike. So hopefully everyone recognizes this since you're all BLS certified healthcare professionals uh, as mandated by the hospital, right? Um, CAB, compressions, airway, breathing, we know this. But the, it, things weren't always like this, and right? It's only been a few years since this has been the mantra of compressions first and then move on to the airway and breathing. And if you think back to 10 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, when modern CPR started in the 1960s, um, it, it looked more like this, uh, airway first, right? Open the airway, look for signs of life give some rescue breaths, and then begin compressions. At, you know, this, uh, right, call 000, right? This isn't from the US, obviously. But you'd be surprised uh, how well the American Heart Association has done, even with the internet, that I couldn't find a single old ABC card or picture on the internet um, in, uh, uh, to put up here. So uh, they're actually doing, a, I think, a pretty good job of getting rid of these old documents uh, and bring them out to the current CAB. So hopefully, though, none of us, um, when you go back even further, remember this as uh, some of the model of CPR. Uh, and that's because the CPR, even though modern CPR began in the 1960s, the story begins much earlier than that. And this is a picture from the mid-1800s or so of a man who is unconscious, has drowned, and these people are trying to revive him by flogging him, stimulating him, right? Not what we would do today. But, but when you actually start to look back at some of the other places 
that resuscitation has been mentioned through the ages, it goes back even further. So this is the Babylonian Talmud, and this is the Rig Veda. So these are two very ancient uh, religious scripts, one from rabbinic Judaism, probably was edited around 200 BC or so, give or take a few hundred years. The Rig Veda is one of the four canonical scriptures of uh, Hinduism. Uh, and that they estimate this to be around 1500 BC, 2000 BC. So both of these documents actually uh, recount similar stories, interestingly, from right across the world uh, um, of an animal, in one case a lamb, in one case a goat, uh, that had been injured and had suffered a severe injury to the neck. Uh, and the person uh, in the story took a hollow reed and placed the hollow reed through the neck of the animal, basically one of the first surgical tracheostomies uh, that's ever documented, and the animal lived. So even 2,000 years ago, there was starting to be this uh, recognition that the airway um, was going to play a key role in saving someone's life. The ancient Egyptians and the story of Isis and uh, Osiris uh, when Set uh, killed Osiris, uh, chopped him into, I think, 42 different pieces and scattered the parts. Isis, his wife, uh, went and found all the different parts, put him back together, and gave mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, gave, breathed the breath of life back into him. Um, in First Kings, uh, from the Bible, the prophet Elisha is described going to a child and... Uh, Quote, and he went up to put his mouth on his mouth, and the flesh of the child became warm. So, and, you know, there, some people will talk about some of the religious implications of it, but many people actually think that this one was one of the first written descriptions of mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation as well. And there are other texts that support that um, the uh, ancient Jews, with newborn babies, would use mouth to nostril resuscitation to help them breathe again. So many of these techniques that are still used today, I mean, think about that, 2,000 some years later, and fundamentally, we're just doing the same thing that people were doing then. It, it's, it's pretty inspiring. Uh, this, everybody, everybody knows this gentleman. This is uh, Galen, who's the, one of the father physicians. He described uh, using a fire bellows um, stuck in someone's mouth in order to inflate the lungs and give them breath when they were unconscious. This gentleman, it, so now we're, by, by this point, we're up to the 15th century because n none of this was, you know, done in a big public health, public, uh, you, you know, codified guidelines uh, to people doing this in community. I mean, th these were like individual physicians um, who were making these observations, often scattered both in location and time. So we're now up to the 15th century, and really there's nothing that's changed. Sorry, 16th century. This is um, Andreas Vesalius, who was a Belgian anatomist. And he did experiments um, in dissections of animals and humans. And you, you can see here the, actually a piece of art and you can see that this dog, which the mouth has been bound so that the dog won't bite him. Um, and the dog has a surgical tracheostomy. 
So Vesalius took a, a hollow reed, similar to what was described before, um, attached a bellows to it, and this is one of the first uh, recorded mechanical ventilation back in the 16th century. Uh, and for, the, for many hundreds of years, when this was done, this was thought to be the most effective way and the safest way to do it with fire bellows. As time went on, uh, there became a realization again that barotrauma and volutrauma uh, would kill someone. So in the 1800s, there was a movement back away from using fire bellows to inflate the lungs to mouth to mouth because it was felt to be safer. But it continued. Um, some, in uh, 1754, uh, the first air pipe was invented. And it was actually a, uh, the precursor to the modern endotracheal tube. Its physician, uh, Dr. Pugh, took a piece of coiled wire wrapped it in leather uh, and placed it through the mouth down into the trachea in order to attach it to a fire bellows again. And he actually did this to help treat neonates with neonatal asphyxia. You can imagine that a fire bellows with a neonate lungs probably didn't go very well. But, um, but this, I mean, it, even shortly after that, people started putting uh, sponges um, around the tube to effectively get the first cuffed into tracheal tubes as well. So around the same time, though, in, right, we're now mid-1700s, the, the people who were most identified as needing acute resuscitation were victims of drowning. And uh, the Dutch Humane Society was one of the first uh, organizations to start to uh, organize around uh, and codifying steps in order to save someone's life. Uh, so, and they actually claimed to save about 150 people using their techniques over the span of four years. So what they suggested, one, warm the victim. Two, hold the victim upside down to empty the lungs from water. Three, apply manual pressure to the abdomen to start to push water out. Probably right, achieved actually some chest compression and cardiac output through it, even though they didn't necessarily realize it at the time. Their techniques, uh, they were doing it for the purposes of ventilation. Four, mouth-to-mouth -mouth breathing or using a fire bellows. Five, tickling the victim's throat. Okay, sure, probably don't want to do that now, but again, try in an attempt to get fluid out of the body. Stimulate the victim with oral or rectal fumigation, <laughs> often with tobacco smoke. The thought was is that the irritant of uh, tobacco smoke would stimulate the body enough to um, revive. And then lastly, bloodletting. So I, four out of seven isn't bad, right? I, I, the fact that they got four out of seven, that's over half, um, you know, actually still survived to the modern day uh, is probably the reason why they were able to save 150 lives. Um, so at this, this idea, though, that ventilation was really the first 
thing that needed to be done to help breathe the pneuma back into the person and uh, get oxygen in, although you know, oxygen um, was discovered ar around this time. Uh, but the, the drowning societies, in an attempt to help with breathing, recommended these other techniques, which were supposed to help inflate the lungs, deflate the lungs. So there was the barrel method, right? They'd roll this unconscious person over a barrel, pushing them back and forth like this. And with each roll of the barrel, it would compress the lungs and relax the lungs, helping air move in and out. Again, probably it was doing cardiac compression and generating cardiac output. The trotting horse method, again, same thing. They would put, the, put you on a horse, slap the horse on the back, it would start trotting, and you would bounce up and down, generating cardiac output. In the late 1800s, this is Moritz Schiff, um, who was another physiologist, um, realized that with dog experiments, he was doing open cardiac massage on a dog and realized that he could generate a, car a carotid impulse. And that, that's when he started to realize, oh, wait a second, actually, you can restore the circulation, right, manually opening the chest. Um, and this is, again, around the time uh, with the development of anesthesia through chloroform and ether that um, there was an increasing amount of anesthesia-related cardiac arrest in the operating room. So the surgeons were already there. They were able to open the chest, begin cardiac massage if needed. The thing is, is that there was still this under-recognition that the restoration of the circulation was, the was really a priority, and um, people focused on ventilation still. And it wasn't until um, this gentleman, Franz Koenig, who was a German physician and another fellow by the name of Frederick Mass, um, managed to save a child's life using external cardiac compression that things started to be perceived a little bit differently. Uh, so Koenig described the idea, but Mass eventually put it into practice. He was doing a, a pallet, soft palate repair on a nine-year-old boy. Uh, who had had a bunch of surgeries previously. Um, and so when they gave him anesthetic with chloroform, it took multiple doses of chloroform to get adequate anesthesia. And with the third application of the mask, the child became blue, cyanotic, dilated pupils, and he was unable to feel a pulse. And so Mass decided to try Koenig's idea, which was, external cardiac massage at the rate of respiratory variation. Again, thinking, well, okay, if I can breathe for him, that'll help. Uh, the color got a little better, but nothing as far as a pulse. He did it for about 30 minutes. Child didn't wake up. He performed a tracheostomy, uh, and then moved the child out of the operating suite so that someone else could operate. But he didn't, he was really distraught over this whole thing, didn't want to give up, and as he began, to get more agitated, he began compressions faster and harder and faster and harder. And pretty soon, actually, the child developed a pulse. His pupils started to constrict. He started making spontaneous respirations and brought the child back to life. And this is the, one of the first documented in the modern medical literature uses of car, chest compressions um, for the purpose of resuscitation. 
And so he then went on to talk about how actually if you do it hard, if you do it fast, you'll have a better output. So was like skipping ahead to the 1960s, this is the gentleman who's really credited with being the father of modern CPR. Um, so this is um, Dr. Peter Safer, Safar, um, who was at the University of Pittsburgh and was an anesthesiologist. And he's credited with recognizing the importance of the airway, developing the head tilt, uh, chin lift, and jaw thrust techniques to open the airway. And he actually did a bunch of experiments on healthy volunteers like all of us where he would anesthetize them, paralyze them, and then just do mouth-to-mouth -mouth ventilation. <laughs> and the, yeah, exactly. Right? And, and, and during these experiments, he drew blood gases repeatedly and showed that actually you can ventilate someone completely adequately and keep them uh, uh, adequately oxygenated just with mouth-to-mouth. Residents and med students, both. Right around the same time, the, these three gentlemen at Johns Hopkins, uh, it's Dr. James Jude, Dr. William uh, Cohenhoven, and Dr. Guy Nickerbocker, uh, developed this, which was the first uh, electrical defibrillator. Right? It's humongous. You can see these are the two pads that they applied. I don't know how they applied them. Um, but the, one of them was an engineer, electrical engineer. Uh, one of them was a cardiologist. And they, so they were doing, um, the, there's some other history which I didn't go into around the development of the defibrillator. But uh, as they were doing this, they also realized that as they were applying these pads that they could generate a, a impulse, like a, like a palpable pulse. And they actually kind of moved away from this just focusing on the defibrillation to cardiac compressions. Uh, and they described a case series of 20 people, all of whom had cardiac arrest in the operating room, uh, that they resuscitated only with the external uh, chest compressions. So once, once this was published, right, then began this huge drive to take this information out of the operating room and disseminate it. Um, and so as the late 1960s rolled around, um, different communities were starting to invest time, resources, and experiment with uh, delivery of CPR to the public. And so this, these are pictures from Seattle. Seattle and Miami were probably the two leaders uh, in developing their emergency response systems. But uh, this is the Medic One team, uh, which so if, and, and even today, they, they're kind of the leaders uh, in the country. So the average response time for, the, for um, someone who has had a cardiac arrest, the, the response time to have a, uh, a medic doing compressions in Seattle is on average of three to four minutes. Um, which is, I mean, has anyone ever driven in Seattle? You can't get anywhere in 30 minutes, <laughs> right? And, and, and they figured out how to do this. And so, so Dr. Uh, Kopis and uh, another cardiologist whose name escapes me at the moment, um, really developed this tiered response emergency system that's become a model uh, 
worldwide. They also developed a citizen CPR program that taught 50% of uh, citizens how to do CPR. And it was met with a lot of resistance initially um, because, oh, really, Joe Schmo is going to be able to do CPR? And then actually two high school kids uh, saved an adult's life while um, doing CPR while they were waiting for medics to arrive, and that made the paper, and, and it turned people into believers. Um, and actually, so the another thing, just keeping this in mind, resuscitation rate in Seattle for witnessed um, shockable sudden cardiac arrest is 62 percent. It's about, it's over twice the average of most cities. So it can be done. So it brings us to today, um, give or take 20, 30 years, right? So, um, but, so now right, we've, we're, we're here with this uh, sense of um, compressions first really are the things that make the difference. And there's a lot of science behind that. We'll talk a little bit about it. Um, then focusing on the airway and breathing. And the, this s survival chain um, that the AHA talks about, so preventing cardiac arrest, do it, performing high-quality CPR, notifying uh, emergency services, um, receiving uh, advanced life care services, and then post-cardiac uh, arrest resuscitation care. You really need all links in the chain to have a good outcome. Okay, so uh, residents in the room. Um, uh, Dr. Michelle Tyler, you know, since you're not a resident anymore, you get this one. So um, thinking back to Dr. Braga went in the sim lab and he talks about doing high quality CPR. What's the mantra that he always has you go through? Harder, faster, allow full recoil, minimize interruptions. Right? <laughs> Excellent work. Right? So he didn't just make that up. Uh, <laughs> Right. This this is this comes directly from the AHA, and um, these are the priorities um, from the 2010 guidelines. Is um, make sure that you have a compression rate of at least 100, not approximately. Um, have a compression depth at least one third of the AP diameter for small children. For adults, it's still two inches or 50 millimeters. Um, Allow complete chest recoil between compressions. Minimize interruptions and avoid excessive ventilation. Um, and so this is one of the more instructive graphs about why that's the case. So when, when you have cardiopulmonary arrest, right, and your heart enters into a non-perfusing rhythm, be it PEA, be it VFib, VTAC, um, one of the things that's no longer happening during that time of no, no cardiac output is that the coronary arteries are no longer getting perfused. And if the coronary arteries aren't getting perfused, then the heart doesn't have a chance of getting restarted. So chest compressions, one of the big things that they do is help deliver oxygen back to the heart so that you can hopefully restart it either on its own, uh, if in the case of PEA, uh, asystole with medication in the case of PE, PEA asystole through, with epinephrine or through electricity um, through defibrillation. But if you don't have enough oxygen uh, being delivered to the heart and you go ahead and defibrillate it, uh, the chance that you 
stay in a perfusing rhythm is very small. So what you're looking at here, uh, this is a graph. This is blood pressure on the y-axis, and this is time. And this is a human who has, is getting compressions. And with every compression, you can see systolic blood pressure rises. Diastolic blood pressure is here. And it takes multiple compressions before you really generate enough pressure in the aorta to perfuse the coronaries. Since the coronaries only get perfused during diastole, you need to allow, you need to stop compressing the heart for the heart, uh, for the coronaries to fill. And you need to maintain this coronary perfusion pressure. So the more times that you interrupt, very quickly pressure drops. <coughs> if you're not doing it hard enough, you never generate the pressure. If you're giving very frequent ventilation, there's lots of times that you're not doing chest compressions. And you need an adequate rate. So I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit now about some of the studies that have come out um, in the past few months uh, looking at how we're doing with CPR. Uh, but, but before we get into some of those, I, I, I want to talk briefly about this because the, the, there are a couple outcomes that people look at. One, it's not just can you restart the heart or do you survive to discharge, but what's your, what's your functional outcome after a cardiac arrest? And um, this is probably the, the most commonly used neurologic scoring uh, system that is being used. Um, so this is the pediatric cerebral performance category, PCPC. Um, and the idea is that um, you can have a number one through six, low being better, um, right? So normal, normal, right? Moderate disability. Uh, you can do daily activities, independent activities of daily life, uh, but you may need an IEP, for instance. You may have like observable cognitive deficits. Right? The farther down you go, six, you get all the way to brain death. So most of these studies um, tend to lump a score of one or two as a favorable neurologic outcome. So normal or just a mild disability. Um, some studies, and I'll call them out as we get to them, um, included a PCPC of three in their good outcomes. So fortunately, um, you know, we, we, we're living in an age where we have access to big data uh, and to types of data that we never had access to before. So as you'll see, we now have defibrillators that can actually measure compression depth in real time and record it. We have them that can measure the rate along with it, the ventilation, all of these things. And really, are we adhering to the guidelines that we said we want to follow? We also have these big registries that can track all these patients over years and this massive amount of data. So the AHA uh, has this resuscitation registry called Get With The Guidelines Registry, which is an encouraging kind of a name, right? <laughs> Go ahead and do it. Um, and what, what it tracks is patients, it, it, for the hospitals that participate, and there's a couple hundred hospitals that are part of it in, in the United States, um, 
Anybody who's had an in-hospital resuscitation event or an out-of-hospital resuscitation event that made it to the hospital and then they received post-resuscitation care. Um, so just recently, this is a paper by Geroda et al. kind of for this uh, AHA Get With The Guidelines group. They've, they've released a bunch of papers just recently. And this is one of the biggest reviews of uh, um, the data that we've seen so far. But this, this was looking at survival trends over the last decade. Um, and this is survival to discharge in pediatric in-hospital cardiac arrests. So they, they took all the patients um, with an index arrest, right? If you have one arrest, it's likely you're going to have a second arrest in that um, same admission. So they only looked at the first time that the, that the ch children arrested, um, looked to make sure that they had complete data, said, okay, we only want the ones that happen on a general inpatient order in the ICU. And they decided a priori to look only at hospitals that have been participating in the registry for over three years and have more than five cases per year. So the, these are hospitals that do this on a regular basis. Um, and they ended up with 1,000 cardiopulmonary arrests from 12 hospitals. And so this is kind of over time, and this is a percentage on the left. And these are the types of arrests that they were seeing, which they're fairly constant, although there is a little bit of a trend recently to more asystole PEA arrests and fewer shockable rhythms. And this is what they saw, right, is that actually we're, we're not doing that bad. We're making progress. So what, what you're looking at here is this top line is the acute resuscitation survival percentage. Okay, so how many people do you get back into a... Uh, into a circulating rhythm, right? Um, how many of them survive afterwards? So this is 24 hours out. And then how many of them survive to discharge? So the first thing to note, right, in early 2000s, we were down around 20% of patients who have a cardi in hospital cardiac arrest survived to discharge. And by the end of the decade, they were up to about 40%. And if you look at other case series and other papers that have come out in the same time, you, you see the same trend, that kind of in this latter half of the 2000, the, the, the aughts, um, that the survival hovers somewhere between 30, 45%. Um, so, most of that benefit that this group attributed things to was this increase in the acute survival. I mean, these other two curves parallel each other for the most part. But down here, these are patients with significant neurologic injury in the survivors. And even though more people are surviving to discharge, we're not seeing that these are patients with worse neurologic outcomes. These are people with favorable neurologic outcomes, PCPCs of one or two, right? It's actually pretty reassuring, right? It, you know, we're up to 70, 70, 80% of people, you get the circulation back, about half of them survive to discharge with a good neurologic outcome. 
The problem, though, is that it's very hospital dependent, okay? Um, and this is the same group uh, looking at the same data in a different paper. Uh, um, and they look, they stratified all this information based on hospital. And so in this series, they had 1,500 patients from 164 hospitals. 88 of them had non-shockable rhythms. And uh, they took the raw data, and then they also generated a multi-variable regression analysis to risk standardize um, the patient populations, trying to take into account maybe some patients have oncologic patients, bone marrow transplants, maybe some don't. And I mean, you can see, I mean, there's a vast discrepancy, right? Some hospitals are performing very well, 60%. Some, nobody survives, right? Stay away from here. And, um, but, but when, when, when you start to risk standardize, even so, that's a pretty big spread, right? I mean, 30 to 50%. I mean, it matches the data that they showed, but um, clearly, some places do better than others, and we need to try and understand what's going on here that's not happening here. <laughs> so they posited that one of the things that is making a difference, looking at the guidelines, um, that is um, that, that they tried to answer is, does it really matter? And it turns out it does. Um, compression depth. Um, it's very easy to look at rate based on telemetry and are you doing CPR at a high enough rate. But depth has been very challenging to capture up until recently. Um, and now with defibrillators, they'll record this data. So if you guys have seen the new Zoles that we have, um, it will tell you push deeper, push faster, um, which is great. Now, granted, they don't um, make a distinction between are you um, a neonate and you're trying to do a third of the AP diameter, or are you an adult, you're trying to do two, two inches. But um, it, uh, maybe I'll convince you after looking at some of this data, it doesn't matter because we always need to compress deeper than we're doing. But um, so they, they, they looked, um, again, in the same registry um, for uh, patients that we, they had been able to collect this data. Or, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, this was not the same registry. This was a single center uh, study um, because they were the only ones that had this defibrillator at the time. Um, and they looked at the first five minutes of CPR. Um, as opposed to the entire resuscitation. They were looking at AHA depth, and they defined compliance as over, for every 30-second interval, that over 60% of those intervals had an average depth greater than 51 millimeters. So they found 90 CPR events. They broke them down. And you can see there's a clear and this was all statistically significant. 31% um, of patients in the low depth got circulation back, whereas 74% got it back in people who had the guidelines followed. And on top of that, uh, survival to discharge, 7% versus 23%. And with a good outcome, right? Again, majority of these people, if 
you survive to discharge have good outcomes. This is the same study, right? You can see that just in a different representation. Right? It makes a huge difference to compress deep enough. So the question that, right, I mean, that's at least one explanation, right? And there are many, many different explanations between high-performing hospitals, low-performing hospitals. There's the uh, how often you do it. There's the team dynamics. There's um, knowledge base. Um, but if, if we just focus on the guidelines and the basics of this all, uh, people, they, other groups have started to ask, well, can we teach this? Can we get people here? Um, and so fortunately, this gentleman, Andreas Leerdahl, um, who's a Norwegian, right around the same time as Peter Sifar, uh, developed her. And this is Rasasa Annie. Um, and this was one of the first lifelike mannequins that was used for CPR training, kind of modern-day simulation. Um, and interesting, as I was reading about this, it, it, it turns out that um, when, when Leyerdahl went to create uh, Annie, so he was in um, toy design initially and then got into plastics and uh, was inspired by Peter Safar um, to develop a resuscitation mannequin. But there was a story that he had heard about a girl in France in the River Seine who they had, it was a young girl and they had found her body floating in the river and presumably she had committed suicide. Nobody ever found out. And no one was able to identify her. Um, but it, it, as was the custom at the time, they created a death mask um, to kind of immortalize her um, since she had no family. And he, he was really struck by this story, and so he actually used her death mask as the face for Rasasa Annie, thinking that, well, if you could make this more lifelike, you would motivate more people to spend time learning CPR. That was a fascinating story. But, um, so, you know, so let's take this to the simulation lab where, and, and, and see how we can do it. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to talk about the science of simulation and um, you know, we know that from airline that flight simulators uh, and practice makes permanent and people get better. And Dr. Braga has told you about much of this before. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to focus on, um, on, on some of these new studies that have just come out. So th there's a group called INSPIRE, which is the um, international network for simulation-based pediatric innovation, research, education, enough words to spell INSPIRE. Um, and... Um, so they, they just released this uh, study um, last month, uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's called CPR CARES. I couldn't find a good explanation of the acronym. Um, but what, it was a randomized multi-center trial um, that was simulation-based. And it used uh, over 300 healthcare professionals, all from pediatric hospitals. Um, and what they were looking to do is to see whether they can improve the quality of CPR um, using either real-time feedback, um, so having a device tell them push harder, push faster, using just-in-time training, so right before they did the simulation, if they taught people principles and had them do a dry run, could that improve their skills, um, or 
both. Uh, and their primary outcome was chest compression depth. And then their secondary outcomes looked at rates and the chest compression fraction, right? Did you minimize interruptions? So, and it's, you know, it was nice to say before, hey, this is great, we're doing really well. This was actually really disappointing and disturbing to me to read, that um, we don't do nearly as well as we think we do. So chest compression depth, so uh, what you're looking at, again, percentage of people who did it, if you had just-in-time training over here, if you had no just-in-time training, and the diamond uh, triangle here is with visual feedback. So even people who were told ahead of time and people who had visual feedback weren't able to do adequate depth of chest compressions. Right? If you had neither, right, this is about 15% of people were able to do it. Heart rate was considerably better, okay? So, and, and I think, and, and part of the reason that they posited, which makes sense to me, is that, well, you can see it, right? We have a monitor that's right up there that says, this is what your heart rate is. But even so, only 80% of people with that feedback were able to get there. And these are trained healthcare professionals. Um, chest compression fraction was pretty good. It didn't really change. Um, but this, this same group uh, in another paper, this is the part that was fascinating to me, is that every, so everybody thought they were doing well. So this is the perception of how, how uh, well you, were, you had adequate depth of compression. And this was the reality. Everybody thought, yep, I'm doing deep enough compressions across the board. Right? And this is when you, th there was a little bit of a discrepancy, not statistically significant, when you looked at the people who were actually doing the compressions and the team leader. Um, the people who were doing the compressions had a little bit better sense that maybe they weren't doing it, and the team leader had no, no understanding of it. But, uh, I mean, I, I, this is striking to me. The same was true with heart rate. No intervention. 18, the, this is median, right? So these are box plots, right? So the median, 18%. The spread is huge, right? Some people actually did it all the time. But everybody thought, yeah, we're pretty good. Um, so, so, what, so what, how, how do you combat that? I, I, I don't even know, because uh, some of it is breaking down these perceptions of what, that we aren't as good as we think we are. Um, but also that we need to practice. So let me ask you this. Um, in the last month, who here has actively done compressions on a human? What about the last two months? What about the last six months? Okay, a couple of residents. Okay, was that the first? So, of the of the residents who did that, was that the first time that you've ever done compressions before? No. Okay, so you've at least done it. Okay, what about in the last year? Okay. Okay, a couple more people. What about two years? Starting to get some more. Okay, what about five years? Some more. Okay. So, 
All re okay, and now let, 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 me, let me ask again. So uh, in the last two months, what about including compressions on a mannequin? Okay, some more, right? So some people, right, so we're starting to get some more exposure. And this is the problem in pediatrics today is that this doesn't happen very frequently. So you need exposure in the simulation lab is the place that we get it. So this group at Hopkins um, just released, literally just released, um, a uh, study um, where they took nurses, um, non-ICU nurses, and uh, they were randomized to receive an intervention or not. Um, and this is looking at their ability to do good chest compressions and good CPR. So they, they either got standard AHA training, which we have all had every two years to stay credentialed, and then other groups would get a 15-minute training session every two months, every three months, every six months. And part of that curriculum was to do a skills assessment first, to do a rapid uh, feedback session, and then do it again. And then they tracked over time performance. And part of the curriculum was also um, teaching them clear scripts on what to do in the first few seconds to ensure that you began high quality CPR quickly. And so what they saw was, um, again, this is median and the variable, the things that they looked at were a little bit different than what we've been talking about, not just compression depth, but um, time to starting compressions. Um, and right for groups that got training, um, this, the spread of time was less. And they were, most groups started within 15 seconds, right? The goal is begin compressions within 10 seconds um, if you can't identify a pulse. Whereas the AHA guideline control group, right, it could be over a minute um, before compressions were actually started. The same thing um, when they looked at median time to defibrillation. Um, the groups that had the more frequent training, that right, the spread is much narrower, and the median, it's both of them are under two minutes, which is the goal. But the longer that you go, right, the worse your skills decline, regardless of if you know what you're doing or not, because you haven't done it. Um, right, I mean, you look at this group, some people didn't get defibrillated until, what is that, like seven, eight minutes out? Right? We know that early defibrillation and shockable rhythms improves outcomes. <laughs> so, I, I mean, we, we've got a long way to go, right? There's, um, we, clearly we're doing better, but some people are doing better than others, right? And we need to start to figure out what those things are. And for an institution like us, where we don't do a lot of CPR and we don't do a lot of resuscitation, um, we need to increase the amount of time and practice that all of our staff get to spend in the simulation lab. But the, you know, I, I don't know, call me an optimist, but it's nice to see that even 15 minutes um, can really make a difference. Um, and I, I would hope that people wouldn't say that we don't have 15 minutes every two to three months to spend practicing this. Um, okay, so in the last five minutes, I just want to show some cool stuff that's coming down the pike. Um, right, it's 2015, Back to the Future 2, Marty McFly, 
traveled forward to October 21st of this year, so get ready for your hoverboards and um, I don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> so um, the first thing that's already happening in big ECMO institutions is eCPR. So ECMO cannulation with ongoing CPR. So uh, in ECMO centers where you have a cannula going into the neck or going into the chest, pulling blood out, passing it through an oxygenator, just like cardiac bypass. Um, now for patients who have witnessed arrest, patients are going directly onto ECMO. So you can imagine this is a huge undertaking. Takes, that, that code probably takes 50 people to do um, because you have people priming a pump with blood, with uh, albumin, with calcium, with, all the, with anticoagulants. You have people doing compressions and giving medications and trying to restart the heart. You have surgeons sterilely prepping the chest or the neck to put cannula in and doing surgery on a child while compressions are actively going. And the goal with, with all of these programs is to get on circuit in under 40 minutes to an hour. Pretty cool stuff. And it turns out, right, I mean, so ECMO's, you know, ECMO is a therapy that will kill you, okay? So, right, it's a, once you're on ECMO, it's a race to get off because it will kill you, get, get, given enough time. Um, and this is data from the ELSO registry. If you look at eCPR cases over, this is in 2011, right? 40% of those patients survived a discharge. Um, and actually, if you look at their neurologic outcome, they actually all, most everyone does pretty well, which is a little surprising. I was expecting that you know, once you go on ECMO after eCPR that you're going to have hypoxic injury or bleed from ECMO itself. But actually, most of these people do well. Um, there are now devices that will actually do automated compression, external compression, right? Okay, if we can't learn to do compressions adequately and can't do the rates enough, how about we can program a machine to do it? Makes sense. Turns out, though, in, just in November, this big study from the Lancet um, in adults with over 4,000 patients enrolled, there was no difference in outcomes using this or using manual CPR, um, and just more um, incidence of chest bruising um, and chest laceration from the device itself. So this was another method of resuscitation. In, Russia, Siberia, I would presume, 1800s, of burying the person in snow and splashing water in their face um, as a way to resuscitate them. Um, which actually kind of reminds me a lot of me in my yard here. Oh, oh wait, sorry. That's Luke Skywalker, and he got um, resuscitated in the future. But, but the therapeutic hypothermia actually... Um, Right? Maybe the Russians figured that out a couple hundred years ago. Um, so therapeutic hypothermia is a big thing right now. And can we improve patients' neurologic outcomes by cooling them uh, after a cardiac arrest, the same way that therapeutic hypothermia before cardiac arrest, which is what happens on bypass, um, helps protect the brain? There's a big multicenter study going on, um, which is just recently closed, and we don't know the results of that yet, but hopefully we'll be able to tell you that soon. Um, this is Dr. Sam Tisherman, uh, who's a surgeon at uh, Maryland, um, used to be at Pitt, who's doing a study um, actively in trauma patients, looking at 
emergency preservation and resuscitation. So patients of gunshot wounds, stabbing, who come in in cardiac arrest in, in, into the ER almost all die. Mortality is less than 10%. And so because of that, they were able to get IRBs to agree to waive the need for consent. Um, and they're actually doing a study where you arrive in the ER with um, one of these injuries, you immediately have a thoracotomy with a cannula placed into your aorta, and you're pumped full of frozen saline to cool your body down to, I think, 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, with the idea that it can give them an hour to take you to the OR, find where you're bleeding from, <coughs> repair it, and then warn you. Science fiction is here, right? Is it, like, it, this, is, this, is, this is amazing if, if this actually works. And who knows if it will. But it's, you know, it's actually happening. Um, this is a guy, I, I don't know if any of you know him, uh, Dr. John Keir, um, who's down at Boston Children's. He's a cardiac intensivist. Um, and he's actually developed liposomal oxygen for intravenous infusion. And in an animal model, a rabbit, um, he's taken this oxygen, right, and it's basically like a syringe with oxygen in it, um, blocked the windpipe of the, of the rabbit. The, exper the, exper the control animals would just arrest after 8 to 10 minutes, and at 15 minutes they'd get resuscitated, and you can imagine they all had severe neurologic injury. The experimental animals got an injection of liposomal intravenous oxygen, and none of them arrested, none of them dropped their sats, and they all survived with good neurologic outcome. Obviously, it's a ways away from um, human trials, but think about this for somebody who's on a boat, who, right, or starting to drown, who can just, at their drowning, they get trapped under their boat, they grab their emergency IV oxygen pen, boom. <laughs> I'm completely serious, right? Give them 15 minutes so that rescuers have the ability to extract them. This is here. Um, there's a really good TED talk um, there. Um, so parting thoughts, um, and I'm happy to take questions, but uh, I wanted to show you um, this while we watch. Oh. Um, for all that we've done and progress in resuscitation, um, the animal world has figured it out also. There's a monkey who was electrocuted on a train um, station, and his monkey friend uh, actually resuscitates him doing chest compressions. He doesn't, he doesn't mess around with ventilation. He goes straight to CPR and bites him. <laughs> And dunks him in water and slaps him around a little bit. Um, but, um, but, but to this monkey's credit, right? 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 He saved his life. So. Last, last link in the chain is post-resuscitation care. So I, I don't know that the, the monkeys have figured that out. Anyway, thank you very much. Uh, happy New Year.